America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. As much as, like, I got my hook on because it's easier to operate the computer with, but as much as, like, I have no arms and legs and stuff, I'm pretty an everyday average person. Episode 31, Travis's American Story. Welcome to another episode. My guest today is Travis Mills. Travis, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. And not to be confused with the rapper that has his own MTV shows, <laughs> I'm Travis Mills, retired staff sergeant with no arms, no legs. I'll tell you all about it. Just listen. But thanks for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> let's get right down to it. And let's start at the beginning. Can you share with yeah. us a little bit about you growing up and what led you up to joining the military? Yeah. So um, my parents, you know, fell in love and they had a kid and it was my sister and they were not <laughs> pleased with that. So they had me to fix the problem. And then I came out and straight up perfection. Then they thought they could duplicate me because I was so awesome. They had my brother, but He's a dud too. So they had one out of three be awesome. But uh, no, I'm from a small town in Michigan. You know, I grew up playing sports like uh, most people did, uh, football, basketball, and baseball. I made it to high school. I was a standout athlete, you know, varsity, baseball, basketball, football captains, junior, senior years. And then I went to college to play football. And while I was playing college football, I played this whole brand new position. I'll tell you what, I was so good. Uh, my coach left me there all year. So in high school, I was a fullback, linebacker, kicker, punter even. And uh, in college, I played the sideline. <laughs> I must have been good because I stayed there for like the whole season just about. It was insane. But then the uh, season came and went. And then the baseball coach asked me to play baseball because I had a really good scouting report. And I probably should have played baseball instead of football. But, but anyways, the baseball coach at the college asked me to play. And I had my mind made up that I was going to go back to go back home and go to college near my, my mom and dad, you know, where I grew up, my hometown, because I just honestly I didn't like college. But my girlfriend convinced me to move home at the time. And after I got back, you know, I had this option to play baseball and stuff. And I just bypassed it. I went back to be around my girlfriend. And then, like, I met her boyfriend randomly, like her other boyfriend accidentally. <laughs> so, like, I joined the Army. And then when I look back in my life, I'm like, man, how did this happen to me? And uh, I realized that it's her fault that I joined the Army. So, no, uh, I, I just – college wasn't my thing, to be honest with you. Didn't really focus. I was racking up debt. It, it didn't make sense for my money that way. And I always thought the military would be a good option. And I went and talked to the recruiting station, and I narrowed it right down. Let me tell you, I had the Marines in the Army narrowed. And that Marine recruiter, this big-headed, bald-headed, bald barrel-chested behemoth, like, you want to be a Marine? Whoa, this dude is intense. Maybe. Tell me about it. He told me all about it. I said, okay. Went to the Army, and the guy's like, you want to be in the Army? I said, I don't know. Tell me about it. And he told me to give me $24,000 signing bonus. Oh, okay. Hold that thought. Because I'm no dummy. I went back to that Marine. I said, what's your signing bonus? And this guy stands up again, puffs his chest out again, and his deepest, gnarliest voice is like, honor, duty, respect. Cool, bro. I'm talking cash and money, though. There's no money here. What idiot would join that branch of service? And if we think about it, we know him. Man, Marines are dumb. But don't worry, they don't get offended because they don't even get my jokes. They <laughs> can't figure them out. <laughs> no, so anyways, I joined the, uh, joined the Army, ended up with the 82nd Airborne Division, $4,000 signing bonus. On my first deployment to Afghanistan, my medic went home after being there for like seven months to watch his first daughter be born. When he was at home, he was showing off pictures. And I'll tell you right now, I found these supplements I got in Germany, if you get my drift. And I was six foot three, 275. 
you weren't a small dude. No, no. And I went, I went overseas at 2.30, but I was over there at 2.75. You know what I'm saying? Holy I, I found crap. The, well, no, because I found the stuff that Arnold Schwarzenegger was taking. It's really cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I was 20 in Afghanistan and going on missions and stuff and coming back and hitting the gym three hours a day. And when, you know, my medic that went home had a little sister that he didn't tell anybody about. She was 18. She was in college. She sent a MySpace friend request saying to date how old I am. And I was going to hit delete thinking it was like, like, no way. This is obviously a dating site or like some kind of ad. Turns out I realized after putting my super sleuth detective hat on, like Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes, that's the same last name as my medic. I clicked the button, did a little more searching. Oh, he's got a little sister he didn't tell us about, and she thinks I'm cute. And she's looking mighty fine herself. So we're thinking, let's just become friends. If there's one thing in life I love doing, it's antagonizing people. And I can be honest, like when I got blown up, I said, Mom, why'd this happen? And she's like, Karma. <laughs> that tells you something. She didn't say that. But I met this girl online. We started chit-chatting. Before you know it, we thought we should hang out. So my this girl I never met before, uh, we decided our first date should be something, you know, memorable. I would have went to Chili's and had a great time. I love Chili's. But we actually went to Cozumel, Mexico. So I flew <laughs> in to pick her up in Dallas at her mom and dad's house. Her dad, like, answers the door. And he's, like, looking up at me like, what, what, what do you want? What? And he's like, I'm sorry. Please don't hurt me. You know, and I give him a little head pat. I'm not going to hurt you, buddy. And a smack on the butt. <laughs> and... And actually, my, my business manager slash father-in-law is Craig Buck. That's why this name is on the computer. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah right. we're great friends now. We're great friends. But we went to Cozumel for a week and back to Michigan and decided we were going to get married. Came back and got married and got an apartment at Fort Bragg and bought a dog. Still got the dog and the marriage. Oh, look at me go. For two for two. I know. And my dog's the best dog in the world. I'm just going to brag real quick. And I know you got questions. Everybody's like, you want to get a service dog? I'm like, no, I don't want a service dog. Yeah, but don't you want a dog that listens? And I'm like, excuse me. What does that mean? And then I tell him, my dog listens just fine. And I say, watch this. He's got a unique name. Uh, his name's Buddy. So that's B-U-D-D-Y. He's Yellow okay. Lab. I'll look at my dog and say, Buddy, sit when you want. And eventually, that dog will sit down. <laughs> and I'm like, Buddy, come over here when you're done over there, please. So when he's done smelling around, doing his thing, he comes back. And I love that dog. But yeah, so we got the house and the apartment. And then uh, I had to play again for a year. A lot more firefights and stuff. Came back. My wife was pregnant. Uh, she wasn't pregnant when I got back. No. When I got back, four months after I got back, she was pregnant. And our daughter, Chloe, was born, who was like my bestest friend ever. And then that catches us up to kind of just before my third deployment. Your third deployment. I yeah. watched your documentary on what happened, but why don't you let the listeners know what happened that day? I went overseas, and we were in a lot of firefights, a lot of combat, a lot of action. And I got a, a phone call from a... Village, I didn't, our PL and our CO did, our captain and lieutenant's got the call from the village elder saying he needs help. And we said, yeah, no problem. Pretty normal, typical thing. What was we your responsibility the, at that time? I was in charge of uh, the heavy weapons squad. So in the military, it breaks down. It's like you have, you know, a troop or whatever, like we were. Then you had your platoons. And in my platoon, there is the E7 Sergeant First Class, who's like platoon leader or platoon sergeant. And then you have four E6s. And I was one of the E6 staff sergeants, but I was a senior E6. So out of those four, I was like the boss of them. I guess you could say I was like the third highest ranking non-commissioned officer. Even though these guys, the other two, two of the three other E6s, like had more time in the service and longer in their, their rank. But I was so good at giving compliments to my first sergeant. I was like, hey, first sergeant, haircut looking good today. Oh my gosh, you want a promotion? Yeah, please. And I'm like, hey, I found this 30 pack. Can you believe it's your favorite kind? <laughs> Here you go. 
another promotion. Brown nosing is my thing. But uh, yeah, I'm good at it. No. So anyway, we went on that patrol and we came to like a short halt. And uh, the guy, we always went on a patrol with the guy that was a minesweeper. So he'd sweep the ground not once but twice and check it. And he marked it all clear. You know, nothing alarmed us with the machine he had. And I took my backpack off, a 120-pound backpack, and I set it on the ground. And when it hit the ground, uh, underneath it was actually a bomb. So the bomb erupted. It went off. And I got blown up. And I was thrown to the left side of my face. When I rolled over, I looked at everything because I was conscious. My right arm was gone. My right leg was completely gone. Like, they never found those pieces of me. And then my left hand was um, still there, but my pinky and ring finger kind of mangled up, and my wrist was blown out real bad. Like, my wrist area in there blown out bad. And my left leg was dangling with muscle and tendon, so snapped to the bone. If you can imagine your left ankle bone on the outside touching your left thigh, gruesome. I know. Sorry. Just trying to paint that picture. Be a little Picasso over here. And I'm laying on the ground, and my medic, Dan Bateson, runs up to work on me. And I'm like, don't worry about it. You're not going to save me because of my line of work. Unfortunately, I've seen guys die for what I thought was a lot less injury. So, like, no way this is going to happen. Don't waste your time. It's all good. And in my head, I keep seeing the movie Saving Private Ryan because the medic in that movie gets shot in the stomach. He cries. He not, finds out, you know, he's probably not going to live through that shot. He starts crying out for his mom, starts begging not to die, and ultimately he dies. And I've always told myself from day one, Never will I be that guy. I was first in a firefight, last out, never showed fear, never ducked for cover. Not that I was reckless, but hey, at the end of the day, it is what it is. I tell the medic and my platoon sergeant, like, don't worry about it, guys. Let's go save the others. I can hear guys yelling, medic, that got blown up with me. They ignore that. They put tourniquets on all four limbs within 20 seconds. While they're working on me and I'm staying calm, I reach up to my microphone on my chest and I say, hey, six, this is four. I got guys injured. I need your medic with mine. And then, um, my other medic come over. He worked on the other two guys. Then he came to me. They worked on me. They had to put a sternum IV in. It's the only time I ever had any pain, actually, through this whole thing. Big, huge, like, 10-gauge needle or something. They just jam it right through your sternum. And it's like, oh! I was like, what are you doing, you jerk? That's funny, because I was about to ask you that. I hear that a lot, is that you don't feel pain. I guess shock or adrenaline. I couldn't tell you, but it didn't bother me none. And I just, you know, whatever is what it is type deal. And they got me in a helicopter. They got me to the hospital. And as a rolling minute surgery, I'm trying to fight the nurse off. Who touched me? I'm fine. Leave me alone. I keep sitting up. She keeps pushing me down. And about the third time, she's like, Sergeant Mills, I don't know how you're still awake right now, but you need to go to sleep. And then they knocked me out. And then um, nine doctors and seven nurses worked on me for 14 hours in the initial surgery. Two nurses for nine hours, like pump air in and out of my lungs, keep me alive. And I was actually given over 400 units of blood, which is the most blood ever given to anybody in Afghanistan at the time. It might still be the record. I hope it is because I'm a winner and I like to win. You know, they actually ran out of blood. So like people were donating right from their veins to mine. For the first six to eight months, I had to keep getting like blood checks, make sure that the blood I got from other people was good or whatever. It's good. Just so you know. And yeah, so that's how I spent April 10th. And then while this is all happening, my brother-in-law who's uh, in Afghanistan, different part, gets a phone call what happened. He comes because, you know, they don't talk about this very much, but whether you're 17 or you're 75 and you're deploying, you fill out in the army a thing called a blue book. And it's like the most morbid thing. You basically just plan your funeral. I want to be buried here with a military civilian style funeral with this music playing, with these articles in my casket. You know, like real sad. And then the last thing is like, who's going to escort your body home? And of course, you know, I was going to escort him and he was going to escort me type deal. So they called him thinking I was going to die. And he came in and then they got me stable but critical. And then they flew me to Bagram on April 12th. They took me in for a clean out because when I did the first surgery, both legs and my right arm were gone, but the left one was still there, the hand. They took me in for surgery and I'm like, no, nope, that's not going to work. 
so they cut it off. And then two days after that, on April 14th, they woke me up for the very first time in Launchville, Germany. And when I came to, the only person was my brother-in-law. I looked over at Josh and I said, you know, my soldiers, how are my soldiers? Because mission first always. And he told me, oh, Ryan's here, Brian's there, you get most blasts, they're going to heal up. They got a little bit of recovery, but they're going to be okay. He said, all right. And I said, am I paralyzed? And he said, no. And I said, Josh, you don't got to lie to me, bro. I can't put my fingers and toes. Tell me the truth. And he goes, man, I'm not lying. You're not paralyzed, but you don't have them anymore. And I said, oh. And then for three hours, I ignored everybody. The doctors would ask questions. The nurses would ask questions. Josh would ask questions. And I was like, nope, I got my own question. You know, a couple of things ran through my head. Uh, am I a bad person? Right? Does God hate me? Like, what did I do wrong in life? How did I deserve this? How can I be a husband and a father? And the biggest question, non-suicidal, and I, and I truly mean that, the biggest question was like, why didn't I just die, right? A real Forrest Gump, Lieutenant Dan style moment where it's like, how is this going to be better? And then finally, Josh chimed in after three hours and was like, look, man, I'm not going to be telling you what you're going through, but you got to call your parents and you got to call your wife. So I called my wife and she answered. One thing I said was, hey, what's up? Fine. Love you, bye. I didn't want to have the conversation. And then my mom and dad, same thing. I was like, hey, what's up? Fine. Love you, bye. Blah, blah, blah. You know, my mom, before I hung up, was like, happy birthday, by the way. It was my 25th birthday that day. And then I, three days later, made it to Walter Reed. And when I made it to Walter Reed, my wonderful wife came running out to see me. And when she got there, the doctors gave her a clipboard. My right leg split open. They had to cut two inches higher. And then my 23-year-old wife with my six-month-old baby had to make the decision to cut my leg higher. And I'm like, just sign the paper. It's okay. It's okay. Just sign it. Then the next day, she came in the room and we had a conversation. I told her she should probably take what we had, the house, cars, any money saved up. It was all hers. And she should go. This isn't the life I would choose for her. Um, but, you know, because of obligation and my story being so well known at that point, she couldn't leave then. And now my social media is so big. I'm like, I will ruin you. Yeah, so we're together now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that's how this works, you know. And I'm in it for the handicapped parking. So <laughs> yeah. That does help, especially on really cold days. Oh, yeah. And rainy. Oh, it helps with everything. But, uh, no, she was actually offended that I said that. And then we were able to um, spend some time at Walter Reed and get better in 19 months. But I'm really telling a lot of story without having you ask me questions. I want to converse with you. So I don't want you mad at me. I have some questions for you because you unpacked a lot there. Let's reverse a little bit. You get blown up. Do you immediately realize what has happened? Do you realize you're missing an arm and a leg? Oh, yeah, they're gone. Am I back like a turtle? looking over and looking down at my legs. The other leg just dangling. I was like, that's not good. No, I know exactly what happened. Okay. Do you have any fear? Are you scared? Well, I won't show it. But you had so, to been. Probably. But I, it's just happening so fast that I don't give it time. Because I'm not the guy that's going to cry out in pain. I'm not the guy that if I end up dying, my men are going to be like, man, I remember Sergeant Mills' like, screams of pain. I'll give you, for instance, my first like a couple of days in the country, like went on this mission and nobody really knew why I was a weapon squad leader. Not that they didn't know why. I was happy and jovial, right? I always smiling and laughing. A lot of guys don't have leadership like me and how I did things because I'll give you the chance to be an adult. If you're not an adult, then I can wreck everything, but I don't want to do that. And I'm very forthcoming about like, look, big kid rules, we're going to have fun. And the minute that you don't act the way you're supposed to and you do the wrong thing and knowingly do the wrong thing, then I'm going to wreck you. But I don't want to get to there because I'm not, I don't like being mean. So no, we, no one really understood, man, I was Sergeant Mills, like how to get the, that weapon squad leader spot. Because they saw me get pinned D6. So they knew I wasn't like the senior guy, technically. And my first sergeant had been on deployment with me before. So he knew like, workers work, players play, I can separate. Well, we got in this huge firefight, third day in country. And, you know, we were shooting and moving and 
we got, uh, you know, in contact and my, my guns are barking, you know, my, that's what they call it with the two forties. I, and they're doing what they're supposed to. And I trained really well. And the third squad, they're just shooting like crazy. And these two team leaders that know what to do. I went over there and I kicked one in the helmet and the other one in the leg. And I yelled at them and I said, Hey, this is what you're going to do. Stop acting like this is your first time, get it under control. And then my first sergeant's like, third squad, go get a guy went down. And he's like, go get him. And I was like, nope, you guys stay, keep firing. I threw up my first sergeant. I said, hey, here, hold this, pass off my rifle to him, toss my rifle to him. And then I just ran down to this wadi where they were pinned down getting stuff. And the guy's like, I can't walk, I can't walk. I'm like, shut up, you know, get on my back. And I threw him on my back and I ran him out, set him down. And then as soon as I got like my water out to take a, take a sip quick, my first sergeant yelling at me, hey, come back, come back. I'm like, oh, crap. So then I was there, grabbed my rifle back. And then I was the last one on the firefighter, if you will, before we had the Kiowas come on and we popped smoke. And we got back and these two guys that, um, they were new to our unit, but had been in combat before. I was like, hey, I need to, uh, we got to request his ammo up. Like, who's coming with me? And they both volunteered and they were like best friends. And they walked over there with me. And they looked, look, they said, look, Sergeant Mills, we had honestly no idea, like why, how you got to be public squad leader from different leadership. We never saw it before. And they both said, you know, but we'll follow you to help them back. Like that, done deal. And then my first sergeant um, was talking to, one of the lieutenants, geez, what the, he's like, oh yeah, that's like, like Sergeant Mills is, he's fun and happy, but put him in a firefight. He's, he's not right. Like he's going to get the job done and show no fear. Later on, we got in another firefight a couple weeks later and a sniper round hit between me and my lieutenants had like six inches and I ducked in. I was so mad at myself for ducking in. I hopped up on top of the berm and I just ripped off a magazine, like 30 rounds plus, you know, magazine and a half before I got back down and they could see me on the, they called a ray camera. They could see me. And one of the guys in the, they call it talk was watching. And he's like, that's either the CEO or big mills. And my first sergeant was in the, the talk watch. Yep. That's uh, that's big mills. Cause they had two mills. The other guy was like six, one, 205 pounds, lift the weights a lot. He's like, why are you guys call me little? He's six, three, 250 pounds. Like unless, until you get bigger than him, you're going to have to get little. Mills. You're a big target out there. Yep. This is where it is. When it came down to like, rounds cracking overhead like I had you know we had uh the female engagement team we call them a fat team who were two females with us very wonderful people friends with them to this day we started getting rounds going and the one the one like looked at me like what do I do and I threw her in a prone position I said you fire back shoot back going up and down the line and um I I just I don't know it's, it's cool like I have this switch kind of and I'm happy I'm go lucky we're having a good time and then it's time for work and it gets serious and then it's here we go. It's not like an anger thing. Like, I don't want you to think like it's a switch. Like I have PTSD or I drink all the time and uh, I don't, I don't have PTSD. I have no nightmares. I've shot people. I've blown people up uh, with grenades. I, I've killed them. In yeah. that regard, you're one of the lucky ones. Yeah, no, I think, I think so. Yeah. But my foundation helps with post-traumatic stress now and things like that, because I know it's real and it's like the unwritten thing, right? Unspoken about, unwritten about, untalked about thing. Like you don't talk to mental health and it's sad that, that that was the thing, but when they came to my room in the hospital, the very first couple of days I was at Walter Reed, they walked in and I just was sleeping the first time. And my wife said, Hey, mental health came and said, tell them they can leave. I, I don't want to talk to them. Second time they came back. She's like, Hey, mental health's here. And I pretend like I was sleeping. And like the third time they came back, I was up eating bowl cereal. I had a makeshift split material arm on and I'm like eating cereal. And they walked in and looked over and I, I, I might have said the bad word. I might have said the S word. Oh, <laughs> And I fell back into my bed, like sitting up, fell back. And I closed my eyes. She's like, what? Excuse me. 
hey, what do you, excuse me. And I gave her my name, rank, and my social security number. She's like, what? And I gave it to her again. She goes, I don't understand what you're doing. I said, that's all you tell the enemy when you get captured. So take it and leave or just leave because we're done here. And my wife's like, you're going to make her cry. I'm like, I told you to tell her not to come back. So I'm not sure why she came back, not once but twice. And then they gave me a social worker person I was supposed to go talk to at Walter Reed. And she's a wonderful person. I go in there. She was from Green Bay, Wisconsin area. Loved the Packers. Right? I'm a Lions fan from Michigan. We talk a little bit of football. Awesome. She'd ask how Chloe's doing and Kelsey. I'd tell her, yeah, you're doing good. Then she'd say something like more personal about me. I'm like, yep, we're not doing that. And then it was just like a, like a weird circle. Like uh, 20 minutes in, I said, look, this isn't the movies. There's no cracking of me. There's nothing more I'm going to talk to you about personally. I said, we can waste an hour of your day if you want. And I do appreciate all the services that you provide here, but you're getting nothing. Whatever you want, do you think this is going to happen? It's not. Because and, you really felt like you didn't have anything to talk about? Yeah. No, I'm good. And then by the second or third session that I had to go there, she's like, you're really, you're really good, aren't you? I'm like, no, I, I really am. That's amazing. Like, she goes, we're not really going to have any conversations like in depth about your feelings and stuff. I said, no, no, we're not. I said, it's not, and, it's, and I told her, it's nothing against you. It's just not going to happen. And she released me. Like, she, we were done. She's like, all right, fine. You don't got to come back. Yeah. How old were you on your first appointment? 19. Okay. And was it to Afghanistan first? Yep. Yeah, all three of them. And the day that you landed in Afghanistan or with your first firefight, there was no fear, no trepidation at all? No, what in the hell am I doing here? Well, my first deployment, I didn't get in any firefights. I had some okay. vehicle-borne IEDs. I mean, I picked up, had to pick up a lot of, like, dead body parts and stuff. And you get so, it's going to sound bad, you get so desensitized, right? Like, you get so desensitized to it. We went on a patrol one day, and we're going out, and this one Afghan National Police guy, and I think it's, it's in my book. You'll actually read about it if, if you do get it. You don't have to. I will get it. But he had on a bright, like, construction-style, like, uh, orange uh, vest on. We were all joking around before we went. We go, well, that's, he's, that's the one that gets, he's going to die today. You know, he's, he's getting shot. He got shot and he died that day. <laughs> and like, you feel bad. Like I'm chuckling a little bit and I feel bad because you're just so desensitized to it all. Like it doesn't, you just take their dead bodies and you put them on the front of the hoods of the trucks and you drive them to the town and drop them off to people. You're not an animal. Like you're, you're not crazy. Like we actually return their bodies instead of just leave them out there to rot. But yeah, I guess, I don't know. I can't believe you were that young and you had the mental strength to get through that. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. Like it's tight. It's a, it's a coping mechanism. I'm sure. Like we had one day, we had like two bodies strapped to a hood and like they're no, no, one body. Anyway, it doesn't matter. One, one dead guy, right? Not to get too vivid, kind of bled over everything. So when we got back, we made some of the privates had to go, like, go clean the blood off the trucks and they're taking pictures putting their head on the hood with all the blood, like, like it's their blood and stuff. And yeah, it's not, this is what you have to, you have to deal with it somehow. So yeah. everything's, everything's usually just a big joke. Were you ever in an induced coma? Yeah. They had to medically put me in a coma for five days or six days. Something that, like that doesn't seem like very long. Well, no, it wasn't like a coma. Like my body went into, it was medically induced right, because my, but... my pain was so bad that they thought that I was either going to OD on my medication or I was going to be so, um, used to the medication that it, my body wouldn't accept it anymore and I just gained horrible pain. So they gave me this ketamine coma. It's the second person in the nation uh, to ever have it done. 
and 30th in the world and what it was to reset my nerves to stop my nerves to stop trying to find my feet in my hands that's what the pain was and they put me in a uh, five-day coma with 600 milligrams an hour and then I came out and um, in my documentary actually I say I wouldn't do it again uh, fast forward now nine years after because I only did my documentary five months or six months after I got injured um, I would I would definitely do it again because I have no pain no medication no problems um, as weird as that sounds, right? Like I wear, I got my prosthetic feet on, my prosthetic hand. Um, I drive where I want to drive, do what I want to do. And it, 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 it really saved, it probably saved my life. Like um, no doubt about it. When you woke up then, you remembered everything that had happened. You knew where you were, you knew what had happened. No, no it took me a couple of days to like get it back. I had two weeks that I completely forgot about. Like I, I had pictures of people smiling. Um, I was going outside for the first time. And I was like, we're going outside the first time? And they're like, you, you, no, you went outside two weeks ago. So I let you ding a bell. And I knew that. And I was like, oh, I get to ding the bell for going outside for the first time. They're like, no, you, you went out on Mother's Day. Actually, it was Mother's Day, I think, the first time I went out. And I don't remember anything from that at all. Like, at all. So yeah. there was two weeks at Walter Reed that I don't remember. And I met people. And they came back, like, like uh, Kyle Maynard. And uh, he's a congenital quad he came to like give support and stuff and um he jumped up and had, we had a conversation i guess for like two hours and then all of a sudden like he straight up was back and i didn't know i even met him i was like we met before and they're showing me pictures and i'm like okay that's crazy yeah well you there had to been a time or a period that you felt sorry for yourself because you're human did you feel sorry for yourself Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I had like, you know, a lot of anger and a lot of like, why me type stuff, but I didn't let anybody see that kind of. And then also, I only did that for I only had like real bad episodes for like the first, you know, two or three weeks after my ketamine coma. Um, because at the end of the day, no matter how many times and I go around, I speak, you know, for a living. So I always get mm -hmm. two life lessons. And, and this is where I learned one. At the end of the day, I couldn't change what happened. So I tell people don't dwell on the past, just reminisce it. Because no matter how many times I sat in the hospital bed, and I closed my eyes and I hoped and I wish and I prayed this never happened. And I said, how do I go back in time? How when I open my eyes right now, it's going to be back to Afghanistan. This is all a nightmare. No, no, the nightmare was always going to continue unless I made it different. My daughter came in my room. She was six months old. We learned how to walk together. My wife stayed by my side. My mom and dad were there. And I'll tell you right now, my mom, she's 110, 130 pounds at the most. Um, five foot two, right? Not a scary individual. I've never sternly talked to my mom. I've never yelled at my mom in anger. No, you know, like that just doesn't happen in my house. Like you just, you knew better. And my, my mom, one day I woke up in the, in a, from a nap and I said, Oh my gosh, what, when's Chloe and Kelsey getting here? My, my wife and daughter, you know? And she's like, well, there it came, but you were sleeping. So we just let you sleep. And I looked at her and said, never, never again, let that happen. I was like, this is the only, that's the only reason this is worth getting better is for that little girl. I said, so don't, don't do that ever again. And it's like as stern as I've ever been with my mom, but like I, it just came out, you know, and uh, like, it was just like, um, at the end of the day, that little girl's still my daughter. I still got to be a father, you know, I still got to push forward and do my best and she'll see me fall. And now fast forward, right? Not to like jump ahead of the story there or anything like that, but I, we have a three-year-old little boy. Um, his name is Dax because the medics were Daniel and Alexander. So he's named after those two since they made it possible. And apparently naming him Travis after me is conceded because I have my Travis Mills group, Travis Mills Foundation, and myself. Everything's all about whatever. you, right? That's my wife says. I won't get into that. That's not, <laughs> one, that's not going to pack that channel on. But, uh, <laughs> no, no, Dax is a wild man. He's three. We have a great time. We wrestle and play. And 
uh, my wife says we're done, but as long as I could prove to people I could still have kids, because I always wonder. It's like the first thing, like, ooh, so I, I, I talked to somebody yeah. about that. That's the thing that they were worried most about. Like, is it still there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, but no, I mean, and life goes on. Right? I had 19 months of recovery at Walter Reed, and not every day was a victory, but, um, you know, I learned how to do everything there. And, I, and my, my daughter grew up, you know, uh, there, and we was strapped to my wheelchair and drive around. And since I was a older guy or more senior ranking um, person, if you will, like everybody looked up to me. So I would fix all their problems. All the patients that were soldiers, like if they had a problem with their leadership or problem with something, I was the one that would say, Hey, what do you need? What, you know, and I had this really cool thing happen. This guy, Todd nicely came to visit me and he was a second ever quadruple MT. He came in my room. And he told me, you know, hey, you're going to be fine. You're not a bad person. God doesn't hate you. All the things I was questioning. And he's like, we'll get through this together. You know, he's like, you're going to be okay. He told me all the stuff I was going to do. And the two thoughts I had was like, I'm not alone, right? Somebody else is out there I can look up to. And two, he's a Marine. So it's got to be easy. I mean, if he can do it, anybody can do it. But, uh, but, and then I, I took it upon myself. And I knew what that did for me to meet him in my room, laying next, you know, bedside, freshly injured, not knowing. So I went to everybody's room and said, hey, how's it going? I'm Travis. Um, welcome. Sorry this happened, but let me tell you, you're not a bad person. God does not hate you. You're going to be okay. And it became a pretty cool thing. They called me the mayor of building 62. And I had a lot of cool experiences and I met a lot of guys and their families. And it kind of started out with the nurses like saying, Hey, this guy up in, uh, you know, on the fourth floor, we can't tell you his name or the room number, but he's not in 40 and he's definitely not in 42, but somewhere in between there, you know, and then the Marines next to me are like, I don't, I don't know how you're going to find him. And it's like, I know you don't, but <laughs> And then it turned in like, hey, we got PFC Johnson up in room 41. You know, can you go take a gander? He told me to be in today sometime. I'm like, yeah, no problem. And I turned into my PT, actually, my physical therapy. I, I would walk, you know, the half mile round trip up to the fourth floor and meet people and come back. Then I start taking people with me. We had like a welcoming party of like nine or 10 guys at any given time in all different parts of their recovery in wheelchairs, on the short legs, on tall legs, just saying hi, you know. And um, yeah, it's pretty cool. And that's kind of, you know, not to jump ahead or nothing, but the foundation started and I just wanted to kind of have that, that support group that I, I started that Walter Reed and continue that on to guys and gals that are, you know, like me with physical injuries and stuff like that and, and do the best I can to, to help them. So it's all tell, working out pretty well. Tell me about this. It's the Travis Mills Foundation, right? Oh, here we go. Conceded again. I know, I know, but it uh, is all yeah. about you. This is your episode, Travis. Well, no, my, my wife and I at Walter Reed were given so much love and support by a different, non like various different nonprofits that we were, you know, thought we should start something and do something. And we thought, let's go care packages. Everybody gets care packages overseas from these big, you know, um, groups, but they always get like baby powder and socks and like razors. And I'm like, when I got care packages, I told my wife very specifically, peppered beef jerky, Orbit gum, peanut butter M&Ms, gummy bears. That's it. Stack it high, get it full. That's what I want. And, uh, I thought, you know, I'm going to send stuff to the guys that I deployed with that are friends of mine and their units because everybody goes back overseas and they got different units and different people. And so Kelsey and I donated $5,000 from ourselves to do this as part of what the Travis Mills Foundation was going to do. But then I learned how to go downhill mountain biking and monoskiing and snowboarding. And um, I did horseback riding. I'll never do it again, but I did do it. They had me like with a Velcro, like diaper, like strapped to a big old horse. I had no control. I was like, mm -mm. You could check it off your bucket list though, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's like adaptive, like sailing. I hate, I, oh, let me tell you something. I don't do well in the heat. My body overheats. I was in Miami, hundred and some degrees, something with humidity. These people are like trying to jump over me, like pull this and pull that. I'm like, my hand doesn't work like that. And then the guy's like, wasn't that great? I'm saying never again, never again. Good for you. Good on you, but never again. 
<laughs> um, actually, my friends were laughing at me. My wife and, and my good friends that did my documentary, and they were on this like $3 million catamaran eating grapes and drinking wine and cheeses. And they got off that boat seeing me with this Pee Wee Herman style hat on. They gave me because Bacardi sponsored this stuff. And they, I don't know how the heck I even got linked up to go on this darn thing. And then they all drew straws and they had to, they were like, who's going to go get them? And then finally, Reese, my buddy's like, I'll go get them. And they could tell I was not. I was like, we're done here. We're done. But <laughs> I got sidetracked. So anyways, we started the foundation, thing of care packages. I went on these trips and I got to take my wife as a non-medical assistant. Some of the service members didn't get the chance to do that. So I was very fortunate. And we thought, let's bring some families out. I'm only doing this to get ready for my family. Let's, let's have some families come to Maine. We have the same kind of terrain as Colorado and, and stuff. And we did it as a, a startup thing in 13. And we did it again in 14 with just one week of families. It went so well, we bought a facility. Elizabeth Arden, she was a cosmetic pioneer every day. In 1929, mm -hmm. she built this facility. And when we got it, it was really bad disrepair, run down. We didn't have the funds, but I was speaking and I was getting companies to not only bring me in to speak, but also like donate after they paid me, you know, my fee to speak. And we renovated it for two years. So like a tune of like two and a half, maybe three and a half million dollars now. And we opened up in 17 officially and bring up uh, eight families per week to a state-of-the-art retreat that has, you know, barrier-free, whether you're wheelchair-bound, like walkers or canes or crutches or prosthetics, you can get anywhere. It's a gorgeous estate. I don't take a dime from my foundation. We've grown to be one of the top veteran service organizations in the nation and making a huge difference. And because everywhere I go and never, you know, speak, people ask about post-traumatic stress, which we never did anything for. We always said, hey, go to this program you know, Warrior Path for Boulder Crest Foundation. And then Boulder Crest Foundation got a grant to open up 10 facilities for Warrior Path. We're uh, part of that now. So we have a post-traumatic stress program as well, which is awesome. And we're just going to keep doing good. We helped 89 families the first year with uh, the retreat, 135 the next year. And then this year we, we start back up in June, but our hope is to get to 42 weeks out of the year. Um, wow. And uh, we're going to get there. So it's, uh, it's, it's really great. And we can't be more thankful for everybody that supports us. That's part of our mission and our team. And, you know, people wonder what keeps me up at night, right? And I'm just going to tell you what people always are like, you know, what, what keeps you up? Is it the firefights? Is it friends dying? Is it any of that? And I say, no, no, it's my businesses. I have four businesses. I either own outright or, or a partnership and my nonprofit. And the truth is I'm either thinking about how I can improve it, how I can make it better, or making sure that I can, that, you know, I have like 50 to 100 people at any given time kind of working for, the various businesses and stuff, they depend on me to make sure that they have a paycheck. So I got to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to take care of them and their family. And um, it's not like that's enough at night thinking about all that stuff. It's just, it's just how it works. Well, let me ask you, was your sacrifice worth it? Well, okay. Let me, let me throw this back at you. Okay. I would not do it all over again. If I had the option, I wouldn't. As selfish as it is, I think you're wonderful. It's been a great conversation. But in 100% truth, I would never do that all over again. I wouldn't want to. Um, you, couldn't, you couldn't convince me that all the work I do now is worth losing my arms and legs so my daughter can't, like, get tossed in the air by me and my son can't learn how to play baseball with me and stuff like that because I can't, I can't really do that that well, right? I'll find a way, but it won't be the same. But I think it's more important to realize I can't go back in time. So it is what it is. I had one guy tell me, you're part of Everything's Great Club. And he lost both his legs and stuff. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you have no arms and legs, but you act like it's everything so great. I said, well, I figure I got about 50, 50, 60 years left. And I can either be okay with what happened, accept it and move on and make everything great. I said, or I can be miserable and not figure out 
how to get past it and just be stuck in my own worst nightmare and, and just be mad about it. He's like, hmm, I never thought of it that way. And I tell people the two life lessons, right? Don't dwell on the past, just reminisce it. Because I had 25 great years with arms and legs and I've had nine pretty incredible, just one bad day at work, nothing I can do to change it. And the next thing I tell people is you can't always control your situation, but you can always control your attitude. And I wake up with no prosthetics on in my bed. And when I wake up in my bed with no prosthetics on, I jump in my wheelchair, I throw my arm on, I go get coffee, I make my wife's coffee or get it set up. My wife and kids come, you know, down the stairs. I, I have an elevator in my house. Unfortunately, Garrison's Foundation helped build my house. So I have an elevator, make it easy. But they come out and we go about our day, you know, and everybody's like, well, what's a day look like for you for, like, what's a normal day look like for you, Trav? Like today I had a meeting at nine. I took my wife to L.L. Bean to get fishing gear. Took my daughter, oh, I took my daughter to school, sorry. And then I took my my meeting and I got to go drop the boat off to a lady uh, three hours away tonight. So I live life normal. Uh, at the end of the day, it is what it is. I can't change it. And I have my motto of never give up, never quit. Live I was by about that. to mention Love that. It. Yeah. And just so grateful to still be around. And I used to get real bitter about what the call your alive day, right? Not bitter, but people want to celebrate it. Like April 10th, the day I got hit. They're like, hey, happy alive day. And I'm like, I was born on the 14th of April. Like, that's my birthday. What do, what do you mean? And I never want to celebrate. Some guys go out and they get really drunk and they drink a lot. And, and it's kind of a sad thing. Whereas for me, I, I broke it down last year, like on Instagram, and I had like a kind of emotional, like heartfelt, like, you know, after eight years, I just think it's important that people know what I think about my live day is, you know, thank you. Thank you for the medics, the nurses, the doctors, the medical staff, the therapists, all the love and support throughout the nation, because without that, I, I, I wouldn't be here. And I'm not bitter no more. I'll never forget the Taliban. I'm not Louis Zamperini, right? I'm not like the unbroken guy. I'm not going to go try to find the Taliban. Like, it's okay. No, no, no. I, to, to the day I die, I will hate that. And I think that's okay. And I know hate's a real strong word. And that's why I have hate in your heart, but it's, it's, it's through my whole body. But at the end of the day, like, I can't change what happened. So instead of like answering that question with like, well, I regret, you know, I ever joined the military or anything like that. Like some people might say, or some people might say, oh, I think it's the best thing ever happened to me. I would just say, can't change it. It is what it is. I don't dwell on it. It is what it is. And I keep pushing forward. So let me ask you my last question. And that is, what does America mean to you? Oh, America means everything. I live in the greatest nation ever. If you think about it, I am a guy with no arms, no legs. I own a lodge in a marina. I am a part owner of an insurance company. I have my speaking company. I have some rental properties. And it's not because people just give me stuff. It's because I worked hard for it. Even having no arms, no legs, I was able to flip one house and another and then get what I needed for this and get what I needed for that. Start my foundation. And I think America is phenomenal. You know, there's things I could change. People won't run for office. My kids are not old enough yet, but don't be surprised if you see me running for office in the future. And, uh, you know, it's not all about insider trading. I mean, there's other stuff that's good about office too, but insider trading, you know. But, um, but no, I, look, love my country, uh, proud of my service, grateful that I got the chance to do it. And just unfortunately, I had one bad day at work. But luckily for me, the way I look at life is uh, I'm the same as I used to be. My legs on, then my pants, and my arm on, then my shirt. So it's just a couple extra steps and we're out the door. Okay, I lied. There's one more last question. Where right. should people go to find more information about you and what you do? Absolutely. So I uh, appreciate that. So travismills.org, you'll find everything. Travismillsfoundation.org, you'll find my foundation. Or on Instagram and Facebook, type in at SSG Travis Mills. You'll see me, my fun videos. And the more followers I get, the more my wife has to be obligated to stay with me. So I appreciate everyone helping me out with that. No, I thank you for your time. I do apologize. I got to nope. run to uh, You're drop good. the boat. Thank you, Travis, so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your American story. I cannot begin to tell you how fabulous it was to spend time with Travis Mills. These guys are like rock stars to me. 
What you didn't hear before I officially started the episode was me crying when Travis came online. This man is the real deal. His organization, the Travis Mills Foundation, hosts Recalibrated, My New Word, Warriors, and their families at a top-notch retreat in Maine. He is the owner of more than one business and also a widely sought-after motivational speaker, and yet he took the time to speak with me. After assuring me he was an average American, Travis Words over the next 40 minutes confirmed to me he is anything but average. Live by Travis's motto, never give up, never quit. Before I end this podcast, I must give a huge, unsolicited, unpaid shout out to PC Laptops. I walked into their store today, sure I had a horrendous virus, sure I had lost everything including this episode. After a little tinkering, the knowledgeable, super friendly staff fixed the issue, not a virus, and sent me on my way, no charge. They have a customer for life. I am humbled you listen week after week to a new episode. Every story is important. Every story is inspiring. Do me a favor. Please leave a rating and review. Share with family and friends. Your support helps more people find this podcast. Next week, my guest is Recalibrated Warrior, double amputee, Joe James. See you on Friday.